Welcome to In Theory, the podcast that uses theory to help explain the world around us. I'm Maria Sachikosaseri. And I'm Naran Khan. Today we're going to be talking about cultural appropriation. Maria and I have been really psyched and kind of depressed to talk about this topic, um, <laughs> right? Maybe? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I would say I'm psyched. I think it's, it's certainly something that has seemed weird and disturbing when I've seen it before, but it's also really exciting to talk about because I think it's a topic that people care about. I hope so. So let's kick it off by talking about just the definition. What is cultural appropriation? Okay, Naren, what what is cultural appropriation? (laughs) Cultural appropriation, and I'm quoting directly from an article in the Huffington Post by Lauren Duca. Cultural appropriation refers to picking and choosing elements of a culture by a member of another culture without permission. This includes traditional knowledge, religious symbols, artifacts, or any other unauthorized use of cultural practice or ideation. Um, Now, that sounds pretty hefty, potentially boring, and maybe even confusing, but we can assure you that this is all around us and can be very, very interesting, Um, and like I said, a huge bummer. Um, So maybe we can just chat a little bit more about the definition and then dive into some examples we've both kind of identified. Yeah, so I mean, I guess the first thing that I would ask is when I hear a definition like that, is does that mean every time I eat a taco, I'm culturally appropriating right down my alimentary canal? Maybe. I don't know. We're all complicit in a whole system of appropriation. Um, we'll yeah, so how do we draw that line between globalization, you know, multiculturalism, learning from exchange. each other, and... Yeah, exactly, which is all all good things. Um, and appropriation, which is a little bit more um, potentially problematic. Sure. Well, this is a theory from anthropology and is kind of used across disciplines and even in popular culture. But, um, you know, it walks a fine line. I think uh, context and history is, is kind of a huge part of understanding the concept. Um, it's rooted in... Uh, you know, power, I think, disparities in power. So um, use of items or knowledge by someone from another culture really depends on, like, the power dynamic, in fact. You can't forget history, I think. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is a topic that always comes up every year around Halloween. A hundred percent. Oh, my gosh. Why is Halloween the, like, the... The worst. <laughs> Halloween on so many levels is just a, a land of fascination to me. But I mean, right, when, so this is where you go back to that question of power that you're talking about because if you're dressing up as a um, Native American or a black person and you are, for example, white, um, that ends up being cultural appropriation and not just homage or some kind of fun costume because of the implicit power dynamics, at least in America, in the relations between people of color and whiteness. Absolutely. I mean, performing and fetishizing and treating a culture as a like a commodity, picking and choosing what aspects or elements of the culture you're going to use to demonstrate you know, your performance of it. Yeah, and your own identity, right? Exactly. Like, p- plays p- plays deeply into it. Mina Psycho Arigato! 
Um, it might be important for a minute just to take a step back and think about what cultural appropriation might mean uh, for a group of people or an individual from whom culture has been appropriated. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. You know, on one hand, it it might it might feel like something that represents you is no longer in your possession. Something that represents you is being you know, represented by other folks in a way that you have no control over. And if it's sacred or really important to you, that can be demoralizing um, and very frustrating. Absolutely. And I actually have an amazing example of that. Um, Urban Outfitters has once again managed to horrify the world with another amazing example of cultural appropriation. I mean, don't get me wrong. They definitely have some cute things, but they also (laughs) are like number one offenders in deciding Um, that other people's cultures and pain are totally up for grabs in terms of like making money. It just makes my brain explode. So they put out a beautiful scarf, uh, which is gray and white striped, which isn't a problem in and of itself, except for it's gray and white striped with a single pink triangle sitting on that lawn of gray and white stripes in a way that is strikingly reminiscent of the uniforms that gay men were forced to wear in Nazi concentration camps. Oh my God. That's terrifying. It's just what, you know, the problem here is what happens when kids are wearing symbols, perhaps for a bit of shock value that recall real serious trauma in the history of the LGBT community, in the history of the Jewish people, really in European and world history, right? So this is a a symbol that is something that has enormous meaning, um, huge trauma for so many people and their families. um, And for it to be sold for commercial gain um, in an environment which is kind of putting forward the, uh, you know, ironic use of other people's symbols as a fashion accessory, that's a kind of cultural appropriation that I feel is, you know, really worth noting and saying, guys, we need to not be doing this. So, like, I, it's my gut feeling that whoever came up with that had no idea of the history. Like, there's no, there's no, like, there's no world in which in my mind, like, someone could know that and, and, and then subsequently create what they create. I I don't know, is that, is that your feeling? Or, I mean, do you feel like, someone really truly think this is ironic I mean no matter what it is it doesn't matter and I think it speaks to the fact that like things that we buy have nothing like we don't know anything about the things that we buy but uh it's it's like I would like I I would like to believe what you're saying but Urban Outfitters has done this this time and again I mean especially with Native American uh, I mean items and artifacts and in fact sacred items yeah and it has ironic things as well. So last year, there was a vintage Kent State sweatshirt that had oh a pattern that looked very much like bloodstains on it. Why? And um, Kent State University had um, killings um, where National Guards shot four students protesting the Vietnam War. And so, you know, the, the blood-spattered Kent State shirt, I mean... What are the odds that they would decide yeah. randomly to have a Kent State t-shirt and it looks like it's covered in blood? What a coincidence. Yeah. I mean, come on. They they are really putting things out there that are kind of meant to be pushing the envelope, that are meant to be, um, you know, creating a little shock value. And so, to me, the fact that it's this company and the striking similarity to the Holocaust uh, uniforms, I really just don't think it's a coincidence. Fair. And it feels very much like, you know, taking a cultural marker and reusing it, repurposing it in a way that's meant to, you know, just be taken lightly and for maybe a conversation starter in 
you know, someone's closet of accessories. Yeah. Okay. I think you've convinced me. And that's like very, very disheartening. I, I do think it's worth thinking about, you know, while it may feel like it's not a big deal, yeah. you know, unless you're in the other person's shoes, how do you know it's not a big deal? Yeah. And if you can make a choice, can't you choose to do something else? I'm going to roll us back a little bit and think about some of the history of the development of this term. And um, one uh, theorist who has been really important in thinking about cultural appropriation is a cultural studies scholar called George Lipsitz. Um, and he wrote a book that came out in 1994 called Dangerous Crossroads. And that was a book about popular music. Um, and, you know, pop music actually ends up being a really important place where this conversation of cultural appropriation gets played out, as you can imagine, right? Thinking about the history of pop music in America, especially the relationship between um, African-American culture and what's come to be known as American pop music um, has a long and storied history. So Lipsitz uh, is talking about um, what he calls strategic anti-essentialism. And this idea is basically that people strategically decide that there's no such thing as kind of essential qualities that constitute a culture or um, kind of unified set of identities, right? So instead, it makes it possible for them to, he writes, become more themselves by appearing to be something other than themselves. So in other words, like drawing on other people's cultures to use as a kind of a window dressing as a way to explain their own cultural identity. So... For instance, one example might be, um, no offense to the yoga ladies, but, um, you know, appropriating a bunch of um, just accoutrements that look like Indian culture as a way of demonstrating one's um, hardcore yoga lifestyle, um, Mm -hmm. not necessarily one's relationship to or investment in Indian culture, but as a way of demonstrating one's kind of contemporary American yoga identity. Right. Right. So something like that. Um, And he's writing about this in terms of music. Um, He talks about people like Paul Simon. As soon as I read that, just in my mind screaming, Hello Graceland, that 1986 (laughs) album, which, um, you know, came out of the work that he did recording in South Africa. Super controversial because of the cultural boycott going on there during the 1980s um, because of apartheid. Sure. Um, So... Anyway, this idea of strategic anti-essentialism, that people kind of strategically decide that it's cool to borrow from other people, irrespective of history and power, um, is really important cornerstone in some of the thinking around cultural appropriation. That's that's actually very helpful kind of theoretical framing and, and probably relevant to so many of the examples we're going to be talking about. People say I'm crazy, I got diamonds on the soles of my shoes, yeah. Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues. Diamonds on the soles of my shoes. Ta-da-da-da. 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 Okay, tattoos and uh, body art. Everyone's seen people who get tattoos um, of 
potential symbols or characters in other languages, specifically Chinese characters, from what I understand, um, that mean Japanese something too. to the other. Japanese as well. <laughs> um, and, you know, they are supposed to mean something, and it's not uncommon for them to not necessarily mean what they're purported to mean, and certainly um, there are many examples of when they mean almost nothing. Uh, we'll mm-hmm. link to some hilarious blogs, um, just for the fun of it, um, that, that, that show examples when, you know, of, of, of tattoos that mean nothing. Um, but, I, I mean, like, what does it mean and, and why would one get a tattoo in another language? Potentially not even, like, fully understanding um, what it means. Um, I guess it's cool. It might be considered to be interesting or different. Um, Mm -hmm. It might demonstrate depth or some sort of um, at least performed cultural appreciation. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure why else, but lots of folks have them. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, I, my guess is that there's something to do with the mystique of another culture. Yeah. um, And particularly of... Uh, forgive my use of this word, the Orient. Yeah. Um, as Japanese American, I've been called Oriental on a number uh, of occasions. That's uh, <laughs> okay. You know, rugs are Oriental. Um, people are Asian. At least that's how we talk about it in this day and age. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and I mean, and there is such a still pop cultural mystique around uh, the East Asia and um, the idea of it as a place of like kind of peace and. Um, you know, the idea of Zen Buddhism and all those kinds of Energy. things, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Inform the desire to be somehow kind of associated with this. I mean, that said, I don't certainly don't think that everyone who has those kinds of tattoos do so thoughtlessly. Right. You know, there's a, a number of fantastic, uh, you know, tattoos where people have good reason to be doing it. But certainly when someone goes to the point of not actually researching and finding out what is going to be permanently marked on their body, it starts to feel like cultural appropriation. Sure. And another example of where it might actually count as appropriation would be when, um, like, sacred symbols are appropriated. Things that are mm. really important to people, meanings, um, concepts, um, or mm-hmm. just, just the symbols themselves. You know, that stuff can be very, very powerful. And to have, you know, have that treated as a, um, an accessory um, mm-hmm. without full contemplation of, you know, the power, the impact, the deep, deep understanding of what it means. I mean, for, for, you know, in so many faiths, it takes lots of time to understand something or the depth of something can't really be captured in a one-word explanation of it. And so that, that would certainly be an example of where, you know, uh, sacred symbols are appropriated. And that happens, you know, left and right. That's, I mean, that may yeah. not be limited to tattoos. Um, I also wanted to just talk really quickly about um, what we call henna or mendi. Like, this was like a thing Madonna definitely took, took up during Ray of Light years. It was like a huge deal. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, a lot of her Ray of Light videos, specifically Frozen, um, you know, featured her, you know, using henna. After that, or maybe even a little before and after that, like you could go to a mall kiosk and get it done, and it was no longer like mixing a paste of of uh, plant extract and and water, and it was like like kind of like a temporary tattoo you could put on, um, with the intricacies of of what used to be done by hand. Now, mm-hmm. like that's all fine and well, we can dissect that all we want, but I wanted to shed light on the the concept of that like no longer being in vogue or no pun intended for Madonna, but like that no longer being (laughs) fashionable. And then people of the culture who continue to do it, like being somehow seen, like like seen as untrendy. 
when like oh, that was weird. just their thing anyways. And it just it's oh, such a weird so concept, but it's like like I mean, I can just imagine someone being like, oh, that's so, like, 1999. Like, what are you doing? Are you at a mall kiosk? But is that true? Have you experienced that um, at all? Like, yeah. That's one example of how trends come and go, and picking and choosing trends from a culture can lead to, like, the trend also being out of fashion and everyone else who actually, you know, uses the cultural item, artifact, concept, piece of knowledge in a traditional way feeling like somehow that it's been violated. So interesting. And it kind of speaks to this bigger question of what happens um, when cultures end up adopting each other's items yes. and transforming them <laughs> and turning them into something that's part of theirs, yep. right? So, you know, to what extent are Taco Bell tacos part of American culture? Or pizza right? or burgers. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And these things that have come from other cultures, especially in a place like America, which really prides itself on its um, identity as a place of cultural adaptation, integration, and change, right, they end up becoming part of it. And I can definitely, certainly understand people who are saying, look, why, why are you making such a big deal out of it? This is just what happens when cultures develop and change. And in fact, you know, a lot of anthropologists really question this idea of culture being so static as to be um, something that you could really, one static culture appropriates from another static culture. Absolutely. Right? There's, so There's just everything is in flux. Exactly. All right. So then how do you start to parse out, right, when does it become weird for, <laughs> you know, Iggy Azalea to uh, completely ignore the history of hip-hop and the African-American struggle when she's doing her rapping? Um, you know, to what extent is that a problem? And to what extent is that just you know, part of the way that hip-hop is changing. Sure. And so it's not necessarily co-option, but it's ownership, recreation, transformation. But I think the the, the point that you make that, that cultures are constantly evolving, um, contemporary cultures are constantly evolving, are totally, like, that's like a, I mean, that's, that's really real. Um, mm-hmm. I think if we are talking about history and power dynamics, I think awareness, oh, like, awareness is a huge part of, uh, of, of being able to, to appropriately use something. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about permission, and, and, and that's something we can also discuss, especially in terms of Native American artifacts. You know, do you mm-hmm. have permission to use something, you know, beyond knowing where it comes from? Do you have permission? And that introduces a whole host of other challenges. Um, yeah, like who gives permission? <laughs> Exactly. On behalf of whom and what are these these constructed groups and when is the permission given? Is it mm-hmm. ongoing? Um, mm-hmm. Is something exchanged for it? Who's the beneficiary of that? Um, I know. And do I get to be on like the great Japanese American culture board who decides so who gets to have <laughs> tattoos or not? Or like, am I really Japanese enough because I'm only half? My language skills are pretty sketchy. Like, you know, it becomes this really interesting and also difficult space for discussion. But I think what you were saying earlier about power becomes really important, right? So it comes down to the individual to be thinking about, you know, what is my relationship to this other culture that I'm borrowing from or interfacing with, right? Is it one of 
equity or historically and culturally have there been some inequalities there that need to be taken into consideration? Absolutely. I just wanted to point to um, one example that embodies the question of who speaks on behalf of whom and um, a lot of different sports team and teams in the U.S. continue to use uh, Native American symbols, imagery, and, you know, like symbolic individuals. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, one example is Florida State, FSU's use of um, the Seminole <laughs> as, mm-hmm. as, their, as their mascot. And mm-hmm. they have, they, meaning like the team, has somehow um, res- been granted permission by, I think, the, like the tribe um, to use yeah. the symbol. Now, uh, that really does raise a question, who, like, who's saying that's okay? Does everyone think that's okay? Is it, do all Seminoles believe it's okay? I mean, again, it's just an, you know, an embodiment of the, the, the questions you raised earlier, but really speaks to this predicament. Um, no good answers here other than like I think working to try to understand the power disparities and like what's like what role you play in whatever power structures or hierarchies you identify. But like what if, you know, you come from a group that has been traditionally associated with the power majority, et cetera. So for example, you're white, but you yourself are not wealthy, right? Um, you perhaps feel disadvantaged relative to people from other groups or cultures within your community. Does that mean that the stables have turned in this particular case? Uh, no good answers. No good answers. And we are never one identity, right? Like, mm-hmm. no, we, like we have cross-cutting cleavages of identity. I know. It's, I mean, I'm, I find this, it's hard because especially it feels sometimes like I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm basically just advocating for what I already do for my living, which is like, you know, learning and not everyone has the time, you know, to be right. like, let me go into a historical, you know, kind of depth to think about the relationship between my ancestors and these other groups ancestors. But at the same time, I think it's super important. I don't know. I think you raised something which kind of tipped my like trepidation in taking on this topic, which is like, I want to do the right thing. I always want to do the right thing. But a lot of times when I do the wrong thing, it's out of ignorance or not like taking the time to understand something. I go to the store. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. I take it home. And then like two weeks later, I figure out that it's like, you know, some sort of stolen, you know, uh, design or something from, from mm-hmm. a, you know, like a Native American group or something. Like that's, that's like my worst nightmare. But even talking about it and talking about it in the wrong way is, uh, is kind of nerve wracking. Um, but I think, I guess two things. First of all, I think it speaks to the need to, like, like, like our consumerism and our, um, as a culture, how we um, are so far removed from the origins of products we purchase. I think that mm-hmm. does not help us in making informed decisions about where things are That's coming such a from. Great point. So mm-hmm. there's structures that are built to make this challenging for us as a society, um, but that doesn't, you know, alleviate the responsibility we have to kind of do the research and be as informed as possible. Like I know, I know you say you come from like a kind of a learning community, but I I also think, you know, it's it's our responsibility as human beings. We owe it to one another to understand where things are coming from. And if you figure out something is wrong, like it's good to say you're wrong and like do something about it and move on. And it's good to tell people around you. Like I think if we weren't so sensitive and defensive and if, I mean, the, the problem is being called a racist. Like that's actually the problem here. (laughs) 
That's where a lot of the trepidation and fear comes from. And I think a lot of the defensiveness comes from is like, uh, is like when people get called stuff like that, um, when in their heads, it's like, well, I don't, I don't know, I'm not that person, but you kind of are if there are structures here and you're not taking ownership over, over, you know, like what you're doing. Yeah. I think that's so eloquently put in I, I completely agree. And I, and I do think also there's, there's something there about, um, a fear of being a bad person, yes. which all of us fear, right? We don't want to be no. that jerk, you know? Um, but I, I do think there's a, a real power in things like theories to help us realize that, you know, when we have a racist thought, um, it doesn't mean that we're a horrible person. Yep. It means that, you know, we belong to a certain set of cultural norms that um, we can push beyond, you yes. know, and that when someone calls us out, it's, embarrassing it's awkward but it's also an opportunity to strive towards being the person that we want to be and you know it's hard work but it's also kind of exciting work to feel like you're taking part in shaping your identity and your life in a direction where you want to go so I, I really I love what you just said I think that's really important oh thanks um totally yeah <laughs> like uh the the trials and tribulations of being a socialized human being all of the good things totally. that come along with it and a lot of the challenges but um it seems like we're thinking that informing ourselves is and, and awareness is the path you know the path forward um, we're going to be sharing a lot of links um, related to the topics we're kind of teasing out today. So we really encourage you to check those out. Questions, comments, ideas. We'd love to hear from you at intheorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find past podcasts and more info about us at intheory.us. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and recommend us to any and all of your friends. In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Music composition and art design by the awesome Aaron Taylor Waldman. Thanks so much for listening.